You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Uh, If you haven't been here at all, of course, we are studying the life of David here in the books of Samuel. And we're in this section of 2 Samuel where David is beginning to take over uh, the, the kingship, the throne of Israel. And it's kind of going in stages. Fifteen years previous to this, David was anointed king. And then he just sort of got to do nothing with that for the last 15 years, except be chased around by his father-in-law in the wilderness, having his father-in-law throwing spears at him and trying to kill him all the time. And now he's taken over as After the death of Saul, he's taken over as king, but uh, just of Judah, just of that southern kingdom of Israel, one tribe out of twelve. And now we're going to see that finally, after the death of Ishbosheth, which we looked at last week in chapter four, David's finally now going to take over the entire kingdom. And so what he's been waiting for and longing for, really with a lot of patience, is finally going to be his. And it says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. So it kind of gives us a little history here. And it, it tells us that the rest of the tribes, the, the 11 remaining tribes, came to David. And, and they said to him, look, you're, you're bone of our bone, you're flesh of our flesh. All of a sudden, they're getting real sentimental with David. It wasn't that long ago, they didn't really care anything about him. And they were even willing to have Ishbosheth, this sort of vassal, pseudo-king who was an illegitimate son of Saul, that they were wanting him to be their king. Now he's dead. They realize we really have no other options. So, you know, you're bone of our bone, you're flesh of our flesh. And in time past, when Saul was king, I mean, you were the one really leading, and you were the one that, that everybody was looking to. And God's told you that you should shepherd my people and be ruler over Israel. And, and so they're they're realizing that it was the Lord that put David over them in the first place. And you notice something about leadership, and that is that leadership is about shepherding people. It's about having a heart for people. And that leadership is something that you don't get to decide that you're a leader. Number one, God decides that. God calls you into that. And then also people have to sort of recognize that and have to follow you. You you notice that they came to David. 
And, and they sort of allow him to be their leader. You can't force people to follow you. And if God's calling you to be a leader, then you'll know because people will ultimately uh, be following you. And they'll be drawn to you. And they'll be drawn to your ministry. And, and many of you that come on Wednesday nights, um, God is raising you up and God is doing a work in your life and He's allowing you to serve in various capacities of ministry here in the church. And, and as God continues to do that work in you and continues to allow you to serve Him, you'll know your calling based upon the fact that people are identifying with that. And, and people are resonating with that. Anybody that, that has to sort of command leadership and command respect, you know you don't have it. And, and you're really spinning your wheels. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David saying, You shall not come in here. But the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, Jerusalem. And so one of the first things that David does as king is he takes over Jerusalem, which was sort of a holdout in Israel. It was one of the cities that they never did conquer. It was still held by the Canaanites, specifically the Jebusites. And they never were able to conquer this city. And they were so confident, were these Jebusites, that David couldn't conquer them, that they said, look, even if we were blind and lame, we, we could fight you off. And if you've ever seen pictures of Jerusalem, you, you know that Jerusalem uh, is a stronghold uh, for a reason, because it's built up on a mountain and it sits up uh, on sort of um, this plateau. And to get to it, you have to, to go up and so they, they would see you coming and it was difficult to, to take this city. And it's why the Israelites in going into Canaan really sort of just left Jerusalem alone. And David wanting this city and realizing that it was an important military point in the nation and it was a, a strategic place to have as Israelites own as Israel's own he wanted uh, that it was one of the first things that he went after and they kind of mock him and, and yet God was with him and he was uh, strengthening them and they were able to take the city and David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeat, defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come in to the house. Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. And this is really the key, and this is the, the difference as you juxtapose the life and the ministry of Saul with the life and the ministry of David. You see that God wasn't with Saul, but he was with David. And you guys, no matter what you're doing, 
in, in this life, no matter what your occupation, no matter what your calling, no matter what your gifting, the thing that you ought to desire is that the Lord is with you. And if the Lord is with you, that's all you need. You don't need anything else except God's favor. And if you'll seek that, rather than trying to please men, you'll be much more content, you'll be much more effective in this life. I think so often we're trying to seek the favor of men. We're, we're sort of, you know, putting our finger out there, trying to detect the direction of the wind. What are people saying? What are people believing? What are they thinking of me? And how can I make people like me? And we spend our entire lives and all of our energy and all of our efforts and our focus trying to get people to think highly of us. When in fact, we ought to just be wanting to please the Lord and having God looking favorably upon us. And the way that we do that is simply by making Jesus the focus of our life and the center of our life. Because God said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So we already know that God is well pleased with Jesus. That's an established fact. So I think what we ought to be saying is, okay, I want God to be pleased with me. He's already pleased with Jesus. So I just need to get on board with Jesus. And God's going to be pleased with me. I just need to be so focused and so centered on Jesus that my life is pleasing to God by virtue of the fact that I am in Christ. That's something that we learn about David. Is David had a lot of weaknesses. And David had a lot of struggles. But David was a guy who understood having a heart that is absolutely surrendered to God. He, he had a passion for God. And, and when you read the Psalms, you, you see why it is that the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. David had such an ability to, to understand things that were way out of his league. Understanding that God wasn't pleased with sacrifice. Very few people recognized or understood that. that. That it wasn't about the sacrifice. It was about the heart. And all of these people were going through the motions of the religious duty. And David was just a worshiper of God. And it's interesting that David understood that on the opposite side of the cross. And we've got people today living with the understanding of the gospel, or at least having the opportunity to understand the gospel, having the revealed word of God, and yet still trying to please God in their own strength. And maybe some of you are in that place. And it's sad because it isn't about us. It's not about our performance. It's not about what we do for God. It's about Jesus. It's about what he's already done for us. He pleased the Father. And David recognized that it wasn't about him. Amazingly, a thousand years before the cross. 
And here we are, 2,000 years after the cross, so many of us struggling and striving for the favor of God, and God saying, it's yours to have. You don't need to work any harder. You can't make me love you more than I already do. I, I love my son, the Father says, and I want you to abide in him. I want your life to be defined by him. The Lord was with David. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron. Also, more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Naphig, Japhia, Elishama, Iliada, and Eliphalet. So David... A man after God's own heart. A guy that understood God in profound ways. A guy that had a robust relationship with God that I think we all ought to seek. But David was also a guy who struggled with, with women. David struggled with lust, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life that First John talks about. David had all of these propensities. And David knew that it was wrong to multiply wives. The, the law was clear about that. It, it's clear that God said that one man and one woman would become one flesh. It never said one man and a whole bunch of women. One man and one woman. And yet David rebelled against God in that. And you know what? His sin was then taken to a whole new level with his son Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women. I don't even understand why you would want to go there. I mean, think about how difficult that would be just to even know the names of those women. You couldn't. Research has been done to tell you that you can't know more than about 300 people. Remember their names. And so, a thousand? You know, can you imagine going home? It's like, okay, I'm going to visit wife number 712 tonight. Ding dong, you know. Hey, how's it going? What's your name? I mean, insane. But... Solomon sort of took David's sin and ran with it. And I think David gave him permission. And, and men, husbands, dads, the, the sin that you allow to creep into your life, the sin that you allow in your home, in your person, in, 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 in your life will be taken by your children and brought to a whole nother level. 
And that's what happened with Solomon as David had this sin that was unchecked. And you know what? This sin was really the source of a lot of David's problems. When you look at the the issues that David had, a lot of it was centered around these multiplicity of wives and the children that they bore, who I'm sure many people said, oh, David is a blessed man. Look at all these kids. And that was sort of a sign of, of the blessing of God. But you look at David's kids and you look at his family and it was turmoil, it was chaos because of David's disobedience to God. And know that your sin and your disobedience to God, although maybe right now it's, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, it will create turmoil and chaos and heartache and destruction in your life. It did for David, it will for you. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the strongholds. And remember, David was friends with the Philistines for several years as he was living in Ziklag. And as he had just become exasperated with Saul trying to kill him, and he he realized he might as well give up on trying to flee from Saul and live there in Israel. And so he dwelt amongst the Philistines and became friends with these Philistines, even being willing to go to war against his own nation with the Philistines. And so now they find out, okay, David is the king of the entire nation of Israel. And so now they can no longer be friends with David. When he was just the king of Judah and there was a divided Israel, they were cool with that because a divided Israel was good for them. When, when something's divided, it's easier to conquer. And so they had no problem with the divided Israel. But now it's unified, and so now they have a problem. And the Philistines went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord. Notice that. David sought God. And he said, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Again, this is a stark contrast to Saul. Remember when Saul finally got desperate because everything was failing in 1 Samuel and he asked God for direction and it says that God wouldn't answer him? And it was sort of this bleak and dark moment in Saul's life and in the life of the nation of Israel that God wouldn't even speak to them. But David was a man who sought God. David made a lot of mistakes and he made a lot of stupid choices as we talked about. But David sought the Lord. He inquired of the Lord. And again, I think that's a great example for us of inquiring and seeking the wisdom of God for everything that we're doing. Asking God, Lord, speak to me. Guide me. Give me direction. God, I don't want to go anywhere or do anything without your presence, without your blessing, without your hand upon me. And God answers him. So David went to Baal Perazim. 
and defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim, which basically means master of breakthroughs. And so the Lord gave them victory. He gave them a breakthrough. And they left their images there. And David and his men carried them away. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore David inquired of the Lord and said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And so he sought the Lord and God said, Look, this time don't go up. Circle around behind And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly, for then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so, as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. And so David continually sought the Lord, inquired of the Lord, wanted wisdom from God, and one place God said go for it and another place God said no I want you to do it a little bit differently and I think one of the questions that I ask myself as I read this is how come God doesn't speak to us like this now why is it that we don't have these kinds of conversations with God why is it that we don't sense God's direction and God's hand leading us and I think the only conclusion that we can come to is that we don't ask number one, and that when we do ask, we really don't believe that he's going to answer us. You know what I mean? When you ask God and he, you, you know in your mind that he's not going to speak to me. He's not going to guide me. He's not going to answer this. And it's a real lack of faith. David just had this ongoing conversation with God. And I think that is something that we can learn is just continually asking God for wisdom, for direction, for insight. We, we all need to be doing that consistently. It, it keeps us from making really bad decisions. It keeps us from, from venturing out in our own strength, in our own power, in our own wisdom and ingenuity, and believing that God's going to speak to us. Believing that he's going to guide us. And you guys, it may not be in an audible voice. And more than likely, it won't be in an audible voice. It may not be handwriting on the wall or a message in the sky. Often it's going to be just in very natural circumstances of life. Closing doors. Resistance. And if you're sensitive to God, you you notice that. And it's kind of like you're beating your head against the wall. And it's like after the third or fourth time, it's like, okay, maybe God isn't blessing this. Maybe I need to stop and go in a different direction. And it's like all of a sudden doors are opening and and God is moving. And you need to pray for that sensitivity. You need to pray for God to speak to you in his word. And he'll be faithful to do that. But then you have to be diligent and disciplined to actually read the word and to do so with an open heart 
and to do so with a desire to hear from God. And I think we also have to have very open hands. We have to be willing for God to, to take things from us. We have to be willing for God to move us and to redirect us and to be okay with that. But if I'm going to stubbornly do my own thing all the time, then I don't want to hear from God because he might say no. He might redirect me. And, and this is something I've already made up my mind and I'm doing this. And so, you know what? I'm not reading the Bible. I'm not going to pray because I'm afraid God might close the doors. And I think many of us can fall into that as well. And it's sort of like, okay, Lord, I've, uh, I've done A, B, and C. Will you now bless D through Z? Will you take my plans and my thoughts and my ingenuity and my energy and will you bless it now, Lord? I'm already sort of a mile down the road. Will you take me the rest of the way? And, and that's not how the Lord works. We, we need to be willing to have God redirect us and to re-guide us. And it, and it means from the very outset, asking God for His wisdom, for His direction, and then being sensitive to listen. And again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000 Gifted men, warriors. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. Now, if you know anything about the law, this ought to stand out to you as a problem right away. And why David, this guy who is, again, so conflicted, on the one hand, so sensitive to the Lord, hearing from God, inquiring of the Lord, and now blatantly doing the opposite of what God's Word says. And I don't know if this is rebellion. It doesn't seem like that was David, just to outright do the opposite of what God would say. But it's possible. I mean, he did do other things that were very rebellious, but this is something that was clear in Scripture, that the ark wasn't to be touched, that it was to be carried on poles, on the shoulders of the Levites, and specifically the sons of Kohath, the Kohathites, were to carry the ark. Nobody else in in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, it, it clearly states that. It isn't like there's any ambiguity where you'd go, well, you know, maybe other people can carry it. It's very clear. The sons of Kohath are to carry the ark and they're to go through the rings on each corner of the ark with those poles that they built and they were to carry it on their shoulders. But David just decides, you know what? Forget that. We're going to make a cart and it's going to be cool. We've got to carry it a long way anyway. And they build this new cart, probably thinking that we've got new ways of doing things. We've got new ideas. And I think sometimes 
We think that our new ideas and our new ingenuity is, is going to be something that God is pleased with when in fact he's not at all pleased with it. It's in rebellion to him. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And if you remember back from 1 Samuel chapter 7, that's the last place we saw the ark. And it's been there at the house of Abinadab for 20 years. And it's actually been a hundred years before the ark was in the tabernacle. It's been a hundred years since the ark has been in their place of worship. And David, wanting to obey God, wanting to get this peace that sort of represents the presence of God in their midst, he wanted that back. Saul never cared about the ark. Saul could care less about the ark of God. Here it's been in the house of Abinadab, and it was with the Philistines being passed around. And finally, David has enough sense. Let's get this back. And so he's got the right heart. God doesn't question his motives. But what God gets upset with is his methods of how he goes about doing it. He puts it on a new cart, which is not how the ark of God was to be transported. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And so you can just picture this scene. A couple of oxen, the cart with the ark on top of it. David's stoked. He's thinking, man, we're, we're really going somewhere now. We've conquered Jerusalem. He had this vision to build God a temple. He's bringing back the ark, and he really thinks he's serving the Lord. What he doesn't recognize is that he's in rebellion to the word of God. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And so this is a, just a huge celebration. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And so they're going along and they go down into this threshing floor, which was basically just a kind of a valley where two hills would be close together. And they would create... Uh, a place in the the bottom of this little valley floor where the, they would be protected uh, from the the enemies that would be constantly, as we read about in Judges, constantly coming in and stealing the harvest. They would do all this work. They would thresh the wheat. They'd have it all done. They would be so stoked. And then the Midianites would come in and steal all their harvest after all the work was done. And so getting smart about it, they kind of began to have their threshing floors in these protected areas where the wind could still blow through, but they would be protected from the enemies. And so they go down into this threshing floor, and it's probably bumpy, and you know, there's a lot of foot traffic and mud, and, and it, there's, a, there's a bump. And the ark kind of starts to get jacked up. And Uzzah goes to stick his hand out again, thinking he's doing the right thing. 
It's not his motives that are the problem. It makes sense. The ark's about to fall off the cart. I mean, we can't have this. And he sticks out his hand to steady the ark. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah. And God struck him for his error. And he died there by the ark of God. Now, we've been talking a lot about the anger of God and the wrath of God, specifically during the the Passion Week, as we look at Good Friday. And when you look at the cross, I think you, you see two aspects, two attributes of God in complete unity and harmony. The anger of God and the love of God. We have the capability of humans of, of having those two emotions, those two attributes working in harmony, but it's rare. It's rare when, when I'm angry and loving. It, it, it can happen as humans, but it's rare because we're, we're sinners. And so we sometimes want to shy away from the anger of God because when we think about anger, we think about sin. We think about stuff flying across the house. We think about our dads and getting ready to go on vacation and, you know, just total irritation that I don't know about you, but when I think about anger, I don't think about God. It's not something that I I think in terms of perfection. But here we read, God was angry with Uzzah. Now, does does this mean that, that God got irritated and that his... Anger boiled up within him and and he just lashed out and then felt bad about it later. Like, oh, I shouldn't have done that, dang it. Is he writing an apology letter to Uzzah's family? You know, sorry about that. Sometimes I let things get to me, you know. No. God is perfect. His anger was justified. Now, Uzzah thought he was doing the right thing. Again, just like David thought he was doing the right thing by putting the ark on the cart. Little did David know he was setting Uzzah up to experience the wrath of God. And that's something about leadership that we all need to take note of. That as leaders, God has entrusted people to us and we can set people up for failure. We can set people up to be judged by God, by following us and by heeding our counsel and heeding our advice. And we need to be very, very careful as leaders that we aren't putting people in a position like David put Uzzah in. But the thing about this whole story, you guys, is doing the right thing in the wrong way. David wanted to bring the ark back to Jerusalem and put it in the tabernacle. There was nothing wrong with that. That was a good thing, but he did it in the wrong way. And you guys, we can do the wrong, the right things in the wrong ways. I, I think that very often, 99% of the time, when, when I get frustrated with people or when I feel like somebody needs to be challenged or somebody needs to be spoken with because they're, they're screwing up. Probably 99% of the time, I'm right about that. 
It's not that I'm wrong in what what needs to be said or the fact that it needs to be dealt with, but it's the way in which it's handled. And so you can do the right thing in the wrong way. And, and I've experienced that many times where I say something to somebody that's absolutely right, but I say it in the wrong way. And now your message is clouded with your anger, your frustration, your flesh. And so then your, your, your right thing actually becomes sin on your part and, and everything that you wanted to accomplish gets lost. And so the anger of the Lord is aroused against Uzzah. And he's struck dead. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. Now David's angry at God, but he has no reason to be angry at God. He should be angry at himself. How many people do you know, maybe you're one of them, who's angry at God? God doesn't love me. God doesn't bless me. God's turned his back on me. And they're angry at God. And they're lashing out at God and they're in rebellion to God. And God is going, look, you have no reason to be angry with me. I want to bless you. I I want to, to shine favorably upon you. But the problem is, is that you're in absolute rebellion to me and you brought all of this upon yourself. David brought this upon himself because he rebelled against the word of God. He called the name of that place Perez Uzzah to this day, which basically means an outburst of anger against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day. Again, David's mad at the Lord. David's afraid of the Lord. Neither one of those emotions are legitimate. He doesn't need to be afraid of God. He doesn't need to think, oh my gosh, God's going to strike me dead any moment. Although there is a healthy fear of the Lord that we ought to have. A reverence, a, a, a fear of God in the sense that we understand how powerful He is and that He, he is a God who we need to honor and glorify. And, and you can have a fear of someone and a love for someone, a respect and a, and a fear for them. And if you had a good dad, you understand that. You understand how that you feared your dad, but you also loved him. And, and hopefully, you dads here, hopefully your kids have a healthy fear of you in, in one sense. Because they know that you're serious about them being obedient and them being disciplined and, and them obeying you and what you say. But they also know that you love them, that you care about them, that you're compassionate. And, and so you can have those two emotions at the same time. But this fear that David had is simply a result of what happened and him being clueless as to why it happened. David was afraid of the Lord and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Woe is me. How, how am I going to get it there? I'm just trying to do the right thing, Lord, and you're not being nice. 
So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Now Chronicles tells us that Obed-Edom was a Levite from the family of Kohath. And so, again, it doesn't tell us if David just so happened to figure this out or if he got lucky or what. But the ark is now brought to the right people. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And so now they're not doing this flippantly. Every time they they go six paces, they stop and they offer sacrifice to the Lord. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod, which was basically like just the undergarment. And so David's dancing around with all of his might in his underwear. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, remember David's wife who Saul took from him, and now David asked for it back when Abner came to him and said, look, we, we, we want to join forces. I'm on your side now, David. And David said, fine, that's great, but I want my wife back. Well, that was Michael. And remember what I said last week? I don't know really why he wanted her back. And this is an example of why. She looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She doesn't respect David. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. And so this, this was done in absolute worship to the Lord. It was a big deal. Bringing the ark. Remember, it's been a hundred years since they've been reunited with the ark. And they're worshiping and they're feasting. And David is dancing before the Lord in worship to God. And I think that when we hear about dancing and twirling, especially for a guy, it kind of seems a little weird to us. But I'm a big sports fan. And... You know, if a guy hits a home run in the bottom of the ninth inning with, with the bases loaded and they're down by three runs and, and they win the game, I mean, there is a lot of dancing going on. You see this guy that hit the home run. I mean, he is dancing all around the bases and all of the teammates are at home plate waiting for him and they're 
celebrating together. And we don't think that's weird at all. Or if, if you're watching a sporting event and your team is winning or they, they go up and you jump up and you're high-fiving, whatever, and we don't think that's weird, but we, we do have this, this mindset that it's, it's weird to show that kind of emotion for the Lord. And look, I, I'm not interested in hype. I'm not interested in weirdness. You know, I'm not interested in drumming up emotion for the sake of emotion. You know, singing the same line over and over again until you're almost in a stupor. As if that's worship. Or doing odd things that you just would never do in any other aspect of life. That, that's really not me. And in other places, that's cool. But I also don't want to get so far away from showing emotion that we, we despise it. And that we look down on it. And I think in, in a culture like we have in this church, where we are very word-based, where you know that when you come to church on a Sunday morning, on a Wednesday night, there is going to be a Bible study. And there is going to be some serious study of the Word. I think sometimes we can get kind of real conservative uh, in our worship. And I don't think that, that we need to go to the other extreme where we actually are despising emotion. If God is doing something in your heart, there, there's nothing wrong with showing that. Now, here's the thing. And, and I don't want to judge people again, but I think this is a legitimate question. When I see people doing things, you know, in, in worship and doing all kinds of weird stuff, you know, banners and, and stuff, I ask myself, do they do that anywhere else? And if they do, I am totally stoked. If they're at home and nobody else is watching and they're doing those hand motions or they're running up and down their house with a banner, then I think that is phenomenal because that's genuine from their heart. But if the only time that they're ever doing that stuff is when people are watching, then for me, that's a problem. And I would say that for anything that we're doing. If the only time that we read our Bibles is when people are watching us, then that's hypocrisy. If the only time that we're raising our hands to the Lord is at church on Sunday morning, Wednesday night, when everybody's watching, and you never do that on your own, then really you have to say, is this a legitimate expression of worship? Or is this just me kind of following along? And I think we also have to be careful in modern evangelical churchdom that we haven't been patterned to do certain things. And you have to ask yourself this. I think it's legitimate. Because there's a, there's a song going and it's, you know, the building up to the chorus, to the crescendo, and, and the drums start to get a little bit more intense, and then everybody's hands go, goes up at the chorus. And then they go down after the chorus is over. What is that? See, we, we, we aren't like automatic, you know, robot-type worship people. It, it needs to be an expression of, of our heart and what God is doing. And if God is leading you to kneel, then you're, you're going to do that. 
If God is leading you to raise your hands, then you ought to do that. And you should never not do it because somebody might think you're weird. And you should never do it because everybody else is or because I think that's what I need to do at this particular place in the song. But at the same time, you know, when the song says, I raise my hands to the Lord, I mean, I think we ought to kind of do that. When the song says... I surrender all. There ought to be an expression of surrendering to God. And so worship, something that I think uh, we need to, to really get better at, I guess. And David returned to bless his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of his maids. As one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. In other words, way to go, David, parading yourself naked out in front of all the women. Aren't you something special? And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And so you can hear David's pride kind of welling up. We've really never heard anything like this from David. And I, I don't think it's anything that is, is probably wrong on his part because his wife is totally in the wrong. But you see that, that David is, is just really lashing out. The Lord chose me, despised your father. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. This is not a good marriage. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Now, some people believe that God judged her and that she was barren at this point. I I tend to think of this just more practically, that David never slept with her again. And that she was barren to that point. She never had any kids and she never had any after this. Because they were pretty much done at this point. And I think there's a a real... um, there's some real wisdom here for us in, in marriage, just real quickly, is that I think you can boil down what men and women need to, to its very base elements. And I know this is over, overly simplistic, but, but men need affirmation and, and women need affection. And I think when you see a woman who despises her husband the way that Michael despised David, where she didn't respect him, and it, it happens because a woman doesn't feel protected, secure, loved. She doesn't feel beautiful. She doesn't feel precious. And, and she begins to lash out in disrespect to, to her husband. And especially when a guy is, is gaining the attention of other women like David was. And, and a guy begins to revel in that. And, and she's not feeling secure. She's not feeling loved. She's not feeling like he honors her and loves her, then she will begin to lash out. And so what you begin to have is a vicious cycle of disrespect, and then him treating her badly, and then she disrespects him more, and more terrible treatment, and it just goes on and on and on. And and you have to break that cycle. And I think it starts with us as men, of just cherishing our wives, as loving our wives as Christ loved the church. And you guys, if we do that, if you will love your wife... As long as she is a Christian, she's not following Jesus, anything is possible. But as long as she is a Christian, 
If you are loving your wife and you are giving her affection, which is what she longs for from you, and if you are cherishing her and making her, besides Jesus, the most important person in your life, you'll have all the respect and affirmation you need. She will love you. She will respect you. She'll have you on a pedestal that you want to be on. But you start neglecting her. You start ignoring her. You start making other things, hobbies, hunting, work, other people. You start making them the focus of your life. And you'll start to see her lose respect for you, not believe in you, not trust you. And it will start privately with, with cutting words and with things said to you that hurt you. And then it will become very public. And then you'll be with friends and she'll start to put you down and she'll start to tear you down. And she'll start to say things that really hurt you in front of others. And when I see that, when I see wives cutting their husbands down in front of other people, number one, it's the ugliest thing. It's, it's, it's horrid. But I also know that's not just a her problem. That's a him problem. Somewhere along the line, she has not felt loved, has not felt secure. She does not feel like he has her best interests in mind. Therefore, she doesn't feel like he's worthy of her respect. And she's lashing out, trying to get his attention. Like I said, it will start in private. And guys, we need to clue into this. Rather than getting angry, rather than than getting upset, what you need to say is, why doesn't she respect me? Why isn't she affirming me? See, it starts with me. We, as the church, the bride of Christ, we respond to Jesus' love, right? And the wife is the, the bride. And husbands, you are Jesus in the relationship. And so you initiate by demonstrating your love to her. And then she responds by submitting to you and respecting you. See, the church, us as Christians, we don't have any problem submitting to Jesus, right? It's like, Jesus, take me. I'm yours. Why is that? Because we don't question for one second that he loves us. We don't question for one second that he has our best interests in mind. See, when you don't know that somebody has your best interests in mind, which many wives do not know that from their husbands, when you don't know that, you don't feel secure, you don't trust. It's kind of like your boss at work. If you don't have a very good relationship with your boss and you don't believe that your boss has your best interests in mind, I mean, you are just combing your your paycheck, making sure that everything is correct and they're not ripping you off and because you don't believe that your boss has your best interests in mind. And guys, if you sense that your wife doesn't trust you, that she doesn't believe in you, that she doesn't respect you, that's a you problem. You brought that on yourself because of your neglect, because of your ill treatment, because you have not demonstrated your love to her. The Bible says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we learn a great deal about marriage in that verse, Romans 5.8. We learn a great deal about love. First of all, love is an action. God demonstrates his own love in Christ. He demonstrated it. He didn't just say it. He didn't just send us a letter. He demonstrated it. Now, some of you guys are so to the extreme, you don't even say I love you to your wives. And that's a problem. That's a big problem. But it isn't quite enough. Like, it's really easy for me to say I love you to my wife. I say it to her probably 10 or 15 times every single day. But you know what? That's not enough. 
It, it, because God could have written in the sky, I love you, but it, he didn't just stop with that. It, it was demonstrated. And so we say it, guys, our wives need to hear it, but then they need to see it too. It needs to be demonstrated. Love is an action. God demonstrated his love. And then it says, while we were yet sinners. And so a second thing we learn about love is that it's unconditional. And see, often our love is very conditional. If you'll do this, then I'll do that. And so we're waiting on our wives to think that we're the best and to respect us and to treat us great. Little do we know is that we are the initiators. We're supposed to be loving them despite them. That's what Jesus did for us. He demonstrated it while we were yet sinners. It was unconditional love. And then it says Christ died for us. And the third thing we learn about love is that it's sacrificial. And so, guys, you need to be sacrificing for your wives. That's love. Laying your life down for her. And I'll tell you this. If you do that, if you demonstrate your love, you tell her and you show her and it's unconditional and it's sacrificial, guys, you won't have any problem having a wife that will respect you, that will honor you and give you the affirmation you need. We see with David and Michael the breakdown here. And it's a great illustration for us. Guys, we need to look to Jesus. He's our example. And just like the church is ready to submit to Jesus, ready to respect Jesus, ready to honor him, men, your wives will have no problem. They want to submit to you. They want to honor you. They want to respect you. And if you don't sense that, you need to go back to the drawing board. You need to figure it out. Look to Jesus. He'll show you. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.